You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. We have so much to celebrate this morning. I'd say near the top of the list is I think the air conditioning just kicked in. So hopefully the temperature will become, we're trying to figure out our system. It's all over. It has a mind of its own. So uh, man, but seriously, we are so excited to be able to celebrate 10 years of this community of God moving in powerful and dynamic ways. And I just want to take a moment, even before we jump into the sermon and into a new series this morning, to honor just a couple people um, who are here with us this morning. And so Michael and Kim and your kids, if you don't mind, do you guys mind standing up for us for just a moment? I just want to say personally to you guys, um, thank you. Thank you for being obedient to God's prompting in your life 10 plus years ago to begin this community, uh, to take a risk for your family. Um, today, we, we honor you guys. We celebrate you and we thank you for just laying that groundwork and paving that way for all God has done, is doing, and will continue to do. I was, uh, I was talking to Mike before service and he was sharing with me, he, he and Kim lead a community called Rising Hope in Indiana now. It's a, it's a church that's doing incredible things down there. And, and he shared with me, uh, there are two guys that are kind of uh, holding the fort down for them there and, and kind of uh, doing services. And both of those guys uh, were part of the New Life family for many, many years and, got, and felt God calling them, prompting them to go into ministry. And so even just like the, the ripple of, we say 382, but like the ripples of how God is moving are completely, we'll never know that number until eternity. And so I just want to thank you guys publicly in front of everybody for just being obedient to God's prompting and for just the way that you followed his leading and the, the amount of work he's done as a result of that. And so thank you guys. Thank you. So today, on our 10th anniversary, we're going to talk about marriage, naturally. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was thinking about this morning, and, and today I, I began praying about it so, about a month or two ago, about, God, what do, you, what do you want us to talk about? And we had this, this marriage series plan, and I'm like, do you want us to kind of shelf that and do something different for the 10th anniversary? And I really sensed him saying, no, no we need to lean into this marriage series and, and still start it today. And there's a couple reasons why. Number one, uh, I'm part of an advisory team here at the church, uh, uh, basically a group of uh, people that hold me accountable, that um, help process through decisions as a church. And I asked them several months back this summer, hey, what does our community really need teaching-wise kind of going into the fall? So I asked them to pray about that for about a month, bring back some ideas. And I don't know if they called each other or talked but every single one of them said, we need a series about marriage, relationships, singleness, because COVID has done a number on those things for a lot of different people. 
And maybe you're here this morning, and your relationship's in a great place, and it's strong. I would say to you, you need this series. Maybe you're here, and your relationship, man, it, it is on the rocks. Maybe you're recently divorced or widowed, or you're just struggling to get on the same page with your spouse. I would say to you as well, you need this series. Maybe you're here, and you're single, and you want to get married, Maybe you're here and you're single and you don't ever want to get married. I'm here to tell you as well, you need this series too. I need this series. And I believe God's going to move powerfully. So that's the first reason why we're starting a marriage series right now. The second reason why I think it's a good idea to start a marriage series on our 10th anniversary is because you cannot talk about marriage without also talking about the church. They really go hand in hand together. And so I believe God's got something for you today. I believe God's got something for every single one of us today. How many of you, just out of curiosity, have been to a wedding and you're sitting there and you're looking up at the bride and groom staring into each other's eyes with stars in their eyes, smiling, and you think to yourself, just you wait till the honeymoon is over. Be, be honest. How many of us have ever thought, I don't care if you're married or not, young love, so naive, but so fun to watch at the same time, right? I think we've all thought that. And, and the reality is, the truth is, every single relationship has a honeymoon period where things are easy at the beginning, where maybe not all the cards are out on the table yet. And it's just, it's kind of easy to float through it. I mean, marriages have honeymoon periods, Going to a new church has a honeymoon period. Jobs have honeymoon. Even your iPhone has a honeymoon period where you're like really gentle with it when you get it brand new. And then by the end of it, you're just like, I don't really care about this thing. Everything has a honeymoon period. Here's what I believe, though. I don't in this series want to speak to the honeymoon periods of our life because that's when things are easy. And honeymoons come and go. But I believe the most powerful places where God's works in our marriages, in our singleness, in our relationship, whatever that might look like for you, I believe the most powerful places where God works is not in the honeymoon phases. I believe we have a real God who wants to do real things in real life for real people. I believe that. I believe that's where his power is. That's where he shows off the most. And so in this series, I'm not interested in just preaching to honeymoon phases. I'm interested in what God actually wants to do under the surface in our lives and in our hearts. And so I thought, if we're going to talk about real life, let's start with some real life tweets here. Who doesn't love some good marriage tweets here? Let's take a look. Number one, my husband was snoring while napping on the couch, so I nudged him to stop then he woke up and immediately went into the kitchen and loudly ate a bowl of cereal. It was like a most hated sounds of marriage compilation. <laughs> Anybody else just hate the sound of chewing? Oh, did I ever tell you about how uncomfortable my chair was in my wife's birthing room? <laughs> it's really hard to sleep in those chairs, guys. Next one. My husband lost a bet and has to wash the dishes for a month, and I just got a credit card alert that someone just spent $200 at Costco. If that man walks in the house with $200 of paper goods, I'm making it two months he's washing those dishes. <laughs> uh, this one might get me in a little trouble. Here we go. So wife, putting frozen strawberries into the blender. Child, ooh, making smoothies. Wife empties bottle of wine into blender, kind of. <laughs> 
Last one here. Husband, day one of marriage. Where do you keep the can opener? Husband, day 4,563 of marriage. Where do we keep the can opener? Any wives? Amen. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I don't even know why I want to start with those. They're fun. The reality is every single one of us know that if you've been in a relationship for more than a couple weeks, whether it's marriage or job or whatever it is, the honeymoon eventually comes to an end. And there's no relationship, at least that I know of, no marriage that I know of that can be described as a honeymoon or a fairy tale that's more than a couple weeks old. Marriage is hard work. Marriage is messy. Marriage is, is the place where we have the most potential to get the most hurt. But I also believe it's the place where we can experience life where we can experience God working and moving. And, and when the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, when he looks at this idea of marriage, he, he's writing this whole chapter on marriage, and then he comes to the end of it, and, and the best word that he can come up with to describe marriage or describe relationships is this word right here, mega mysterion. Mega mysterion, which sounds like a Marvel villain, but it actually just means profound mystery. That's how Paul describes marriage. When he looks at relationships between husbands and wives and, and what that looks like played out and lived out, the best word that he comes up with is profound mystery, mega mysterion. How many of us, maybe if you're married in here and you've, you've you know, had a, a rough season with your spouse and you're just not really understanding why they're doing what they're doing and you feel like you're on different pages or different planets at times and you just throw your hands up and you say, this is a mega mysterion. Probably don't say it like that, but why can't we get on the same page? Why can't I understand you? This is a mystery. Maybe you're here and, and you're single and, and you want to get married and you think to yourself, why, why can't I just find the right spouse? This is a mystery. Or, or worse yet, why does every single relative of mine feel the need to play matchmaker all the time with me? You just throw up your, the, why? It's a mystery. Or maybe, maybe you're here and you feel like your spouse has just changed. That they're not the person you married 10, 20, 30, how many ever years ago? And they're just different. And you throw up your hands. You're like, this is a mystery. I don't get it. My wife, Sam, and I, she's one of the most incredible people I've ever met, but there have been times in our marriage where it feels like we are on different pages, if not different planets, where I have had to throw up my hands in the air and say, God, are you going to salvage this thing? Like, are you going to do something in this marriage? I think maybe all of us have been in this place before, whether you're married or not, of just, God, what are you doing right now? This is a mystery. I don't understand it. Here's the good news, though. When Paul uses this word to describe marriage, he's not just saying, oh, you may as well give up because you're never going to understand this thing or master it. He's not, he's not describing it as like this thing that is unattainable or this thing that is out of our reach or unknowable or impossible for us to understand. The way that he describes marriage is in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is essentially saying here when he, when he describes marriage as a mystery is he's saying this mystery, this secret, can only be understood and lived out when the power of the Holy Spirit is at work between two people and it can radically change things. In fact, I, I brought the, the full verse here that he says this in. It's Ephesians 5, 
31 and 32a, this is how he says it. He starts by quoting Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then here it is. This mystery is profound. This is a mega mysterion. Marriage is a secret that can only be understood through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of two people. And the reality is every single one of us bring baggage. Whatever your, your life season looks like, we all bring baggage to this conversation. And I got to be honest, our culture brings a lot of baggage to this conversation. A lot of baggage. In fact, all of the best research on where marriage is at in our culture right now kind of shows two interesting things that are emerging about how our culture views marriage. On one hand, there is this crippling pessimism towards marriage where people, especially in my generation, I'm a millennial and younger, are kind of very like, keep marriage, this idea at an arm's length. You see marriage rates are getting lower and lower and lower among young people. And there's this kind of pessimism that it's an outdated institution, that it's oppressive, that it's whatever it might be. And so there's this, this move among young people, especially to kind of distance ourselves from marriage altogether. But then on the other hand, there's also this phenomenon where our expectations of what our spouse can do is getting higher and higher culturally. And so we, we enter into marriage with these unrealistic beliefs that our spouse will complete something in us that they were never built to complete in us in the first place. And so there's this unrealistic idealism that a lot of people enter into marriage, thinking marriage will fulfill something in me, complete me, and then when it doesn't, people don't know what to do. And so here we are, caught in the middle as a church sometimes, between crippling pessimism and unrealistic idealism about marriage. And I want to ask this question as we begin this series. The question is this, does our culture, in which marriage is often either a tragedy or a joke, really offer a better model? <laughs> like, really? Are they offering a better model than what this can offer? See, I would argue that a church, a body of people that understands what marriage is, why it exists, whether you're single or not, there's no such thing as this sermon isn't for me because we're not individuals walking through life. We're a community of people walking alongside each other through life. So there's no such thing as this sermon isn't for me. This sermon is for you, and it's for me as well. And the reality is, I believe that the church can offer a better model with our lives of what marriage is designed to be. And so we're going to begin in the beginning because the Bible actually begins and ends with a marriage. It begins and ends with a marriage. And the first marriage that we see happens in Genesis 2 where God created all good things. And he's, he's looking at his creation. He's saying, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then he finds something before sin ever enters the picture that is not good. And it's being lonely. It's lacking community. It's being alone. And so he creates woman as this man's divine helper. Same word that's used for how God helps Israel. And this is what happens in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, God's good intention for our relationships, for marriage, from the very beginning was that we would be able to enter into this space with no shame, 
where we can be fully known, fully loved, exposed emotionally, physically, spiritually on every level and enter into this without shame. In fact, did you know that the way God designed and created marriage is directly to reflect the relationship of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit offering, each, offering to each other the self-sacrificial, self-giving love and submission, three in one, perfect union, perfect relationship with each other. God designed marriage that would look the same way as that. The problem is that sounds a lot like a honeymoon, doesn't it? Because <laughs> real life happens, and real life gets in the way. And, and people are selfish, and people have their own interests in mind. And there are times in my marriage where I'm selfish, and there's times in our marriage where my wife is selfish. And so sometimes that doesn't work. And if you've lived and experienced that rub, that tension in any of your relationships, congratulations, you've justified sin. You've justified how sin has come and disrupted what God designed as good and perfect union. I actually find it crazy that people don't believe sin exists. I, like, have you looked around? <laughs> like, it's everywhere. And, and I don't have a hard time, maybe you do, but I don't have a hard time seeing how I contribute to all of it sometimes, right? Like, like there's deep and profound brokenness that every single one of us brings not just into this community, into the world, but into our relationships with each other. Every single one of us brings that. Every single one of us. The problem, though, is that our culture wants honeymoon-type marriages where our spouse will fulfill our needs but make no claims on us, where our spouse will, will fulfill what, what we long for and what we need but makes no virtually no claims on us. The problem is that's not, that's not real life. Relationships are messy, and they do demand things out of us, and they do require sacrifice. You see, when I look at our current cultural script on, on marriage, what often is said is, well, this is just an archaic, outdated book that's just a product of its time. It doesn't live in the world that we live in right now. That's right. That's what a lot of people in our culture are saying right now. It's just, it's outdated. It's just a product of its time. The problem with that argument is that the Bible has never once fit into the culture that it finds itself in. When Paul wrote Ephesians 5, this was like, what are you saying? <laughs> it was this countercultural perspective on marriage. It was this earth-shattering new idea that the marriage actually looks like something different than what we always thought it would. And so when we hear things like, well, this is just an outdated kind of product of its time, I would remind you that there is no culture that hasn't been offended by the Bible when it speaks about marriage. None. The Bible loves to rub culture the wrong way. The Bible loves to rub culture the wrong way, especially in the area of marriage. Let me give you two examples. The first one is our culture right here. We have a very me-centric culture, don't we? So a lot of us will enter into relationships and marriages with that kind of same me-centered mentality, a me marriage, if you will. And the problem with me marriage is where we expect that somebody doesn't change us, that they meet all our needs perfectly, is that in order for me marriages to work, it requires two perfectly well-adjusted people with no emotional needs or baggage that they bring into a relationship. And that's not any of us. We all bring junk into relationships. All of us, without exception. The Bible also didn't fit into traditional cultures that Paul was writing into. 
You see, traditional cultures overemphasize this idea of, um, of marriage kind of being a social transaction, where it was designed to move your family ahead or bring your family honor or make you wealthier or whatever. And so that's where prearranged marriages and things like that came from. It was a social stepping stone, if you will. Think of, I was thinking of like the movie Aladdin, right? Aladdin and Jasmine fall in love. They can't get married because he's not a prince. So he tries to become a prince and makes a whole disaster. So by the end, the sultan was like, uh, forget the law, we're just going to let you guys get married and break the law and all that stuff. Like, that's kind of the culture Paul was writing into, was this idea that marriage is just a social transaction. It's just a stepping stone for families to have honor and wealth and things like that. And so is marriage about self-fulfillment or is marriage about moving your family name ahead? Paul says it's neither. It's neither. Because he goes on in verse 32 after he describes this as a mystery. He says, this is a profound mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. This mystery refers to Christ and his church. In other words, what Paul is saying is marriage, it is a metaphor for the gospel at work. It is not the ultimate thing. It is a metaphor that points us to a greater marriage, a greater love. You see, Jesus came with a vision for his church, and he chose to die in order to present his bride in all of her splendor to his father. That's a profound mystery. That's a love that goes beyond anything I've ever experienced or known apart from Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a culture that says, find the right person, find the right person, find who you're compatible with, find your soulmate, find the macaroni to your cheese or the peanut butter to your jelly, like find the right person worth marrying. What you rarely hear is be a person worth marrying. Are we focusing on just finding the right person or are we focusing on being the right person? See, sometimes I think we maybe in some ways take our approach to relationships, love, marriage, and almost apply that to Jesus. So honeymoon phases are all about like the butterflies and the kind of shallow love and emotions, right? Like you give me warm fuzzies and all that stuff. And sometimes I wonder if that's how we think Jesus feels towards us. That he looked at you and your sin and your shame and your baggage and your wreckage, and he just felt warm fuzzies and butterflies towards you. The reality is that's not how God's love works at all. It is so much deeper than that. See, Jesus didn't look at us and say, we are so compatible. We're a match made in heaven. No, Jesus looked at his church and he saw sinners drowning in their own sin, pursuing their own selves, pursuing self-fulfillment within themselves. And so here you have two different kind of entities. You have Jesus and you have sinful people without Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that, that if left to our own devices, if we just kind of rely on this idea that Jesus loved us because we're compatible and he, we give him warm fuzzies, then what ends up happening is we end up pursuing our own interests, right? Sin will constantly drive us to pursue selfishness, our own interests, our own desires. And Jesus, Jesus' greatest desire is to bring honor and glory to his Father. That is why that was like his entire mission was to bring us back into union with his Father. So if we, listen to this, if we just pursue Jesus and marriage kind of on our own devices, this is what's inevitable. 
right? This is where we split apart. This is where divisiveness happens. See, Jesus didn't look at you and just say, man, you're, you're beautiful. You're, we're compatible. Like, I love you. I have warm fuzzies. Jesus looks at you and he loves you deeply, but it's so much deeper than just warm fuzzies. I love this description of the gospel, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, right? That's this. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Here's the point. While we were drifting apart, Jesus and his father said, I am not okay with that. And so what I'm going to do as we are drifting apart, as we are fundamentally incompatible with each other, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take on the form of human likeness. I'm not going to grasp my privilege as God, but I'm going to release that. I'm going to give up that privilege and that power, and I'm going to become a man, fully God and fully man as a human being, so that I can reach into the mud, into the muck of your mire and sin, and rescue you and pull you out. See, while we were going this way, Jesus went towards us to offer us a way out. And this is the metaphor that Paul uses to describe marriage. That love and acceptance doesn't just come from compatibility or because you happen to trip along on the right person and you got married. No, compatibility with Jesus and his church comes through death to self so that two fundamentally incompatible people can come together and have a marriage union when two people die to themselves. That's the picture of Jesus and his church. And that's the metaphor Paul gives us when it comes to entering into marriage with a human spouse. See, when we think about this idea of compatibility, we essentially want three things culturally. We want someone who will love me as I am. We want someone who will meet my needs. And we want someone who won't try to change me. And you can see this all over our culture right now. I mean, did anybody hear the news story of Will Smith recently, how him and his wife just kind of do what they want, when they want, how they want, and that's why their marriage works. I don't know. <laughs> but this is why marriages drift apart, right? Here's the bad news. And then I got really good news, I promise. <laughs> bad news is you never marry the right person. You never marry the right person. That at the end of the day, as human beings, we are fundamentally incompatible with each other. There's two reasons I believe for this. Number one is marriage changes us. Relationships change us. And so if we enter into relationship purely from a place of who am I compatible with, you may not like the person you're married to in five years from now. You are probably a different person than you were five, 10, 15 years ago. Marriage fundamentally changes us. You never truly know who you are marrying because you and your spouse Will change. You look at wedding vows for better or for worse. How many couples do you wonder think through what that actually means? Right? Like better or worse? Better or worse? Maybe it's getting pregnant and miscarrying two months later. Like all of the people I know that have walked through that, that, that does profound things to your identity. For better or for worse? For richer or for poorer? getting fired from a job and coming up short on bills. 
that will attack an identity. In sickness and in health, holding your spouse's hair back so they can puke in a toilet. (laughs) Marriage changes us, doesn't it? It fundamentally changes us. Life changes us. And if the primary characteristic that you're looking for is someone who will not change you, then you're looking for someone who's an ideal person to begin with. Somebody fully put together, fully complete on their own, not lacking anything, low maintenance, free from insecurity, happy, healthy, interesting, and content with life. And if you find that person, please come tell me, because I don't think they exist. I'm not that person. See, I came into my relationship with some baggage. I don't know if I've ever shared this. Maybe I have, but um, I actually had an engagement ring still that I owned from a previous relationship when I started dating Sam. And she knew this, and I had just kind of gotten out of a really, really hard relationship that had lasted for years. I was planning to propose. I was planning to marry this other girl. And, and Sam comes in, <laughs> And I just brought a lot of baggage to our relationship. I, I brought a lot of junk, and, and she brought her own from her different life experiences. And the problem is, is that we live in a society that has such a high ideal for what a spouse can offer us in marriage that we don't understand they weren't designed to complete that in us in the first place. And then the second reason why you never marry the right person is because we are spiritually broken by sin. Why should two people who are otherwise neurotic and selfish and self-interested suddenly become angels after they say, I do? Right? There's nothing that magically clicks for that to happen. Sin makes us incompatible. It makes us incompatible with each other. It makes us incompatible with God. Sin made Jesus and his bride, the church, fundamentally incompatible with each other. And unless we understand this, We can't truly understand what God intends for marriage. That Jesus saw his bride and he died for her before she was worth dying for. He didn't see her and say, "You're, you're lovely, you're beautiful to me on your own. He saw her in her sin, in her mess, and he said, you are someone I love so deeply that I will die to myself in order to experience marriage union with you. This is the hope of the cross. I love how Pastor Tim Keller says this in in his book, Meaning of Marriage. He says this, When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think to himself, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down on us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I will love my spouse. Are you willing to let the message of the gospel recreate something so deeply inside of you that it permeates out to every relationship that you are involved in? Because that's what the cross does. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ does. Marriage, marriage is one of the most beautiful pictures to show the world what it looks like when Jesus and his redeemed people who are incompatible come together because of the cross. And the same thing happens between husband and wife when both of them are willing to die to themselves 
so that life can happen. I said the, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. The Bible ends with a marriage in Revelation 19. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb where heaven and earth are united, where Christ and his bride come together in this wedding ceremony. And it's not just built on fuzzy feelings or butterflies or what, compatibility or whatever it might be. It was hard fought for. It was filled with sacrifice, with submission. Those are dirty words we don't like. I'm actually going to be preaching on those next week. So if you're thinking he avoided all the hard parts of Ephesians 5, we're going there next week. But, but that's the beauty of the gospel is that it's this marriage that can happen when, when two people are willing to die to themselves. Jesus went first. We die to ourselves, and this union happens as a result. So maybe you're thinking, well, what about me? Maybe you're recently divorced. Maybe you're not on the same page in your marriage ever. Maybe you've been abused. I would say to you that, that in many ways, the church can play the role of a spouse for you. We see this happening all the time in the New Testament, where we actually bear each other's burdens, where we walk alongside each other. And so if you're in a place where your marriage is really struggling right now, my very first question to you is, what does your community look like? Like, who are the people that are surrounding you that don't just know your name or kind of surface level what you're walking through, but who are the people that know your junk below the surface? What does your community look like? See, I want to remind you that if you're single in here, that you haven't settled for God's second best for your life. Paul himself said that singleness in many ways is better than marriage. Jesus, the most complete human to ever walk the face of the earth, was a single man. You do not need marriage to complete you. And I apologize when the church has made that an idol. Misrepresented the heart of God over that area. See, see the reality is singleness can be a beautiful picture of the gospel as well. We're going to talk about that in this series. My, uh, my intention with today's sermon is to kind of like get the ground wet so that we can go into some really offensive things going forward. Because uh, there is some stuff here that's going to rub us, but I believe God has some powerful things for us. And so I want to just uh, ask this question as we kind of begin to wrap up this morning. The question is this, how are, how are my relationships telling the story of Jesus? How are my relationships telling the story of Jesus? Number one, how are a couple ways that we can do this? Number one, focus on loving Jesus more than you love your spouse or the person you're in relationship with. That might sound kind of counterintuitive. Why would I focus on loving If you love Jesus more than your spouse, the natural outflow of that will be to elevate your spouse, to love them with a sacrificial love. Think about this. If you focus on loving Jesus before or first, before you love your spouse, that puts you in a posture where you are looking for opportunities to wash your spouse's feet, to serve them, to love them, to sacrifice for them. And yes, even dare I say submit to them. That's not a word we like. I focus on loving Jesus first. It cultivates something inside of me that allows me to love with a love that's beyond me. The second one here is, do you have a prayer rhythm for your spouse? Praying for your spouse, with your spouse, is one of the most, the most important things two people can do together. Uh, what's the old saying? A spouses that pray together stay together. It's cheesy, but it's, it's kind of true. And then the last one here is, 
I think in our marriages, in our relationships in general, we need to practice a whole lot of humility. Marriages that work well are the marriages where, where two people are willing to humble themselves for the sake of the other. And we're going to dig into that in this series. So maybe you're not sure where to start. Maybe you and your spouse are on completely different pages right now. And you need some kind of, I don't know, neutral ground to come together and just say, okay, let's, let's reset. Let's make the decision together to walk together into the future. Some, of, some seasons in my marriage, I've needed that, where we just decide to reset. This Friday night, we have a marriage night coming up. And we have several of you already signed up, but this Friday night at 6 p.m., we have a marriage night, and it costs a little bit of money to attend, um, but we would love to help you out with that if that's an issue. But marriage night is going to be an incredible time just to have a date night together with your spouse at church, which saying that out loud sounds a little lame, um, marriage date night at church, but I promise it's going to be fun. There's going to be dinner there, childcare, all of that stuff's taken care of. Uh, you can sign up on our website, newlifewayland.org. But we'd love to just use that almost as a neutral ground that if you need a reset in your relationship to say, hey, you know what, we're going to devote ourselves to working on this thing. I think that's a great place to at least start. I'm going to invite the band back up, and I just want to close with this story. There's a place in the United States called Death Valley. Has anybody ever been there before? Hey, we have a couple people. Nobody in first service have been to Death Valley before. So Death Valley is known as one of the hottest places on earth. It is just desolate. Nothing can grow there. It is just death. All I mean, it looks like this, just death all around. It gets up to 134 degrees some days. I mean, it is hot as heck. <laughs> It gets, on average, an inch and a half of rain per year. It is a dead and desolate wasteland. And scientists have studied this area for, for many, many generations, trying to figure out, like, what, what is the deal? Why is this thing so dead? Why does it get so little rain? All of those things. But in the late 90s, something pretty crazy happened in Death Valley, something scientists had never seen before. They were, they were shocked. It blew their minds when they saw this, that Death Valley actually got more rain than normal that year. And something happened in Death Valley that they did not know and could not understand. And it was this right here. It was called a super bloom. Where after this rain fell, the entire floor of this valley was filled with balloons. And I believe the last time this happened was 2016. I'm not 100% on that. It's about once a decade now that it happens, where what scientists thought was dead was actually just laying dormant, waiting for rain to spring to new life. You know, I wonder if there are times, I have to know there's people in here who look at their life and their relationships and maybe even their relationship with the church or the relationship with their spouse or people around, and all they see is the first picture. It's just desolate. It's a wasteland. There's not hope. There's not life there. And, and you're just sitting there and you're wondering, God, what, what is going on? You know, as we celebrate 10 years in our church today, there have been seasons where I have looked around and seen just wasteland. COVID <laughs> was a wasteland. Can I get an amen on that? Mike and Kim, you have been through seasons of hills and valleys with this community. Sometimes, sometimes things look like the first picture around us. 
But I have seen time and again, I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in marriages. I've seen it happen in individual people where what was dead is covered in rain, where the power of Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit comes in and a super bloom happens. I've seen it happen in marriages. And I refuse to get to a place of cynicism to believe that God's not still interested in doing that type of thing. It's a mystery. It's a mega mysterion, but he still does it. He's still working. He's still moving. And so maybe there is an area of your life that feels just desolate. Maybe it's your marriage. And you need new life. No pun intended. Maybe... Maybe for you, you've looked for that fulfillment, that longing in all kinds of areas that just end up leaving you like the first picture, just dry and desolate. And maybe for you this morning, for the first time, it's time for you to say yes to Jesus. Say, you know what? I don't have what it takes on my own. Left to my own devices, my life is just kind of a wasteland. (laughs) It's a really dark way to say it. I didn't mean it to be that dark, but... Left to your own devices, maybe you just think to yourself, man, like I just come up short every single time. Would you invite the Holy Spirit in to do a new work in your life? Would you invite the Holy Spirit in to do a new work in your marriage, in your singleness, in your relationships, to infuse into your life what only he can, that cannot be done by our own power? If that's you, I'd love to invite you as as I close in prayer to just pray silently in your heart alongside me. You can repeat after what I'm saying. And uh, the invitation here is simple. It's an invitation to let God do a new thing in your life. I wrote this down um, in my notes this week. I don't know why God kept putting this on my heart over and over again, but it was a statement. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is always looking to do a new thing. So you can rely on his stability, but don't miss the new thing that he desires to do as a result of our faith. Let me pray, and if this is the place you're in, I invite you to just pray this silently in your heart after me. God, uh, I love you. And your word says that, that you love me. And God, I know that I am a person who is prone to selfishness. That, yeah, maybe I I do good things every once in a while, but overall, God, I've hurt people. And I've made mistakes. And I've messed up. And God, I've fallen short. But, But God, I also believe that you didn't settle just for that. You didn't settle just to leave me in that place. God, I believe with everything that I am that your gospel means that you stepped into that, that you offer rain where there is dryness and desolation, that you step into the mud, God, and offer me a way out. And so, God, today I take hold of your hand and I receive that. Jesus, I trust in you. I put my life and my faith and my marriage and my family in your hands alone. And God, I invite you to do what only you can do in them. I love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.